right now making sure that everybody in the country has access to the internet is like electrifying the country. That's how transformative it is. Mitch Landrieu is the man trying to make it happen. He's the White House point person for the Trillion Dollar Infrastructure Act. For Sunday, June 25th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Coming up, we head to Las Vegas, a city that could hold the blueprint for water conservation. Vegas is excess. Everything from food to gambling to whatever, nightlife, it's all excess. So they figure we're doing everything in excess, including wasting water. And the latest in our weekly Enlighten Me series, journalist John Ward on the fundamentalist Christian world in which he was raised and what made him leave. I felt a sense of suffocation from being in an environment where everyone thought the same thing and sang to the same chord structure. We'll have all of those stories after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The attempted mutiny by the Wagner Group took Russia to the brink and played out in plain view of the world. At one point, Wagner mercenaries were squaring up against the Russian military when they were supposed to be fighting together against Ukraine. NPR's Jackie Northam has more on how the events of the past couple of days could affect President Putin's grip on power. This is one of the greatest threats to Putin's rule since he took over 23 years ago, leaving the Russian leader weakened and raising questions about his authority. But Andrew Weiss, a Russian specialist at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, says the events over the weekend are unlikely to topple Putin. He says he's survived for 20-plus years because he's very tactical. This is about his personal survival, and we should expect him to be feisty and fight like hell. Analysts believe Russian forces will become more aggressive in Ukraine in an effort to show that Putin is firmly in charge despite the events over the weekend. Jackie Northam, NPR News. The White House says President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke by phone today about the situation in Russia. The Supreme Court is pushing the end, toward the end of its term this week, with 10 cases still remaining on the docket, including what are expected to be the biggest decisions of the term. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. Still to be decided are cases challenging affirmative action in higher education, a challenge to state laws that make it illegal for businesses to discriminate against gay couples in providing wedding services, a major case testing whether state legislatures may draw congressional district lines free from judicial oversight, and a case challenging the Biden Student Loan Forgiveness Program. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Cleanup operations are underway at the site of a bridge that collapsed over the Yellowstone River in Montana yesterday. NPR's Amy Held reports officials are taking steps to protect the drinking water after a freight train carrying hazardous materials crashed into the river. The freight train plunged into the Yellowstone River when the bridge it was traveling on collapsed. Inside the damaged cars are asphalt and molten sulfur, a flammable hazardous substance. The AP reports officials shut down drinking water intakes downstream. It happened in Stillwater County, not far from Billings, which says it's monitoring its water quality. Two train cars also carrying sodium hydrogen sulfate, an acid salt used to make pesticides. Montana Rail Link says water and air quality assessments confirm that chemical was not released. Congress has been working on tightening rail safety measures after February's East Palestine, Ohio derailment spewed tons of toxic chemicals into the air, soil and water. Amy Held, NPR News. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Three elderly people were found dead this morning on Broadway in the Nonatum section of Newton. Authorities say it appears they were all victims of a homicide. Police are actively searching for a suspect or suspects, and area residents are advised to be vigilant and keep their doors and windows locked. Two teens were fatally shot early today in Braintree. Police responded to shots fired calls on Alfred Street around 1.30 this morning. The victims found in a car were identified as 16-year-old Jazier Porter, a Braintree High School student, and a 19-year-old Jaden Santos Andrade of Dorchester. They were pronounced dead at a hospital. Local and state police are investigating. State officials are again warning commuters to prepare for the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. The 89-year-old link between East Boston and downtown will be closed for rehabilitation work from July 5th through the end of August. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says people need to allow much more time, as much as possible, especially if they're headed to Logan Airport. You're going to be better off waiting an extra hour at Logan to catch your flight than missing it. We don't want anybody to miss their, any of those critical appointments. So especially in the first couple of weeks when uh, tra- traffic hasn't settled in yet, it's going to be much harder to, to actually gauge how long it's going to take you. Now, alternatives to avoid traffic delays include the Newburyport Rockport commuter rail line, ferry rides with free or reduced fares, and the MBTA's Blue Line. Again, the tunnel is scheduled to close on July 5th through the end of August. In the forecast, a chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight, with temperatures falling into the mid-60s. More of the same tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms are possible, with temps in the upper 70s. And again, showers and thunderstorms Tuesday. Temperatures on Tuesday in the mid-70s. Got pretty warm and humid in the Boston area today. The high was 86. Right now it's still 84 degrees in downtown Boston. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. When President Biden delivered his State of the Union address this winter, the big emotional thrust of the speech was a law he had signed more than a year earlier. Projects that are going to put thousands of people to work rebuilding our highways, our bridges, our railroads, our tunnels, ports, airports, clean water, high-speed internet, all across America. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, a $1.2 trillion law that achieved two major promises of Biden's campaign for the White House that he would put federal money into rebuilding the country, and that he could get Republicans and Democrats to actually work together and pass major legislation. And my Republican friends who voted against it as well. But I'm still, I I still get asked to fund the projects in those districts as well. But don't worry. I promised I'd be a president for all Americans. We'll fund these projects. And I'll see you at the groundbreaking. This is the year that a lot of the money starts flowing to states and local governments. $225 billion of it so far. And if Biden wants voters to think about him as a president who got major life-changing projects passed and built before next year's election, this is the year the act needs to start to stick more in Americans' minds. The man in charge of making sure that all of this happens, that money gets to state and local governments, that bids for the construction of these big projects go out in time, that enough people are signing up for the new programs, is former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. 
Landrieu has spent the past 19 months fielding thousands of phone calls, making hundreds of trips across the U.S., and telling everyone he comes across how big of a deal the Infrastructure Act is. Well, I think it's clear now that we're not turning it back. I think that's clear to everybody in the country that we're heading in a very specific direction where there is no reverse. Mitch Landrieu is something a bit rare these days, an unapologetic professional politician, somebody who will immediately try to charm every room he walks into, even a room of mildly cranky, mildly self-important political journalists. What a handsome, what a handsome group. Y'all can't talk? How's everybody doing? What's going on? This is my office. You like it? It's in his blood. He's been in office for decades, and he's the son of one-time New Orleans Mayor Moon Landrieu and the brother of former U.S. Senator Mary Landrieu. Now he's running a 15-person team coordinating with federal agencies, state governments, and local governments to get more than a trillion dollars worth of major projects up and running as quickly as possible. My team's job, along with the president being our, our leader, is to, is to build the team, get the money out of the door, and then to tell the story. And so as we Flying from that, Washington to New York City on Air Force One this winter, Landry told me that even if the Infrastructure Act's projects will take years to be built, he's operating with urgency. Secondly, we have intense focus every day, all day. It's all about hurry the hell up and get it done from the president's perspective. So that's just the way we roll. He's a get-it-done guy. Uh, and he gets in the weeds, he travels and, and sees things on the ground. Ben LeBolt is the White House communications director. It feels like sometimes he's in more than five states a week. In January, Landry was flying with Biden to tout a major new rail tunnel in and out of Manhattan. In June, he was in Maryland talking up a $14 billion effort to provide Internet access to people who can't afford it. Landry said he'd been on the phone with three officials already that day, including Maryland's governor. And then speaking to a crowd at a library, Landry insisted the Internet access effort is his favorite program in the Infrastructure Act. Knowledge is the great equalizer. If you don't have access to technology in order to access the knowledge, then you get left behind. The Affordable Connectivity Program gives monthly $30 subsidies for lower-income individuals to buy Internet access. The Biden administration has gotten many Internet companies to offer $30 plans at the same time, making access essentially free. About 19 million people have already signed up. People like Masal Mendez, who remembers having to stay late at school to finish homework he needed the Internet for. This was honestly like super frustrating for me um, uh, as a teenager, because how many teenagers like want to go to school early, want to leave late or spend their, their weekends at a library? No teenager wants to do that. The 23-year-old Texan was skeptical at first, but applied for the program and now pays $20 a month to get online, down from 50. It might not be much to some people. And people like me who come from like a low-income immigrant household and background, like $30 is extra money for gas, uh, for food, and for some people for rent. The internet program has political benefits for the administration too. The huge physical projects the Infrastructure Act will fund may take years to build. For your cheap internet access, that's immediate, understandable, and something voters may more quickly appreciate. But in Maryland, Landrieu is telling a room full of librarians that the ACP is facing a bit of a problem. These are jelly beans to be given out in the bank to individuals who, if they're eligible for it, can just sign up and actually They're all in the library basement, training on how to get more people signed up for the program. Landrieu's telling them it's going to take some work. We have this thing going on where some people, notwithstanding our best efforts say, well, I don't know. 
I'm so busy trying to get to work. I'm so busy trying to get from day to day. I'm so busy trying to pick my kids up from school. I'm the so White House thinks an additional 30 million people who haven't signed up yet could be eligible. So Landry says a big part of his job is selling this. That means selling to the people who might need these programs and selling the broader idea of the act to the public. The idea is to make it simple for the public to get the benefit that the president says that they so desperately need, which is just access to knowledge, which you cannot have if you don't have technology these days. You said a couple of weeks ago when you were talking to reporters that you can make an argument that, that this act is as big of a deal as the New Deal or as the Eisenhower interstate. And I think that would be surprising to a lot of people. People would say that's a pretty big claim to make. I don't think it's just a, a claim. I mean, it, it is factually true. $1.2 trillion to rebuild the roads, the bridges, the airports, the ports, the waterways, high-speed internet, clean air, clean water, clean energy economy is in real dollars as big as building the interstate system and what happened during the New Deal. Um, you could argue whether this was a little bit bigger, but they've only had three times in history where we've done that. So it's really kind of a, 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 kind of a silly argument to have. Right now, making sure that everybody in the country has access to the Internet is like electrifying the country. That's how transformative it is, because it's not, it's not narrow or limited. It is actually ubiquitous, meaning it is everywhere all the time. That will take time to establish. Biden is up for re-election next year. So Landry will keep going as fast as he can. This is kind of like the tortoise and the hare story. <laughs> and with the tortoise in this story. Maybe just a very energetic tortoise. The Infrastructure Act spends $65 billion on Internet access. That's the connectivity program, and then much more to build new broadband lines in places without high-speed Internet. It's the sort of thing people like Catherine DeWitt have been calling for for years. DeWitt is the project director for the Pew Charitable Trust Broadband Access Initiative. I talked to DeWitt to get a sense of what's working so far and what isn't, and I started by asking her what she makes of Landrew's claim that the Infrastructure Act rivals the New Deal. I do. Uh, although, to be fair, you know, maybe this is me drinking the Kool-Aid that I'm selling. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I, I do believe that. But I, I think what is noteworthy about this moment that we're in is that we see folks moving away and policymakers in particular moving away from this idea that access to the Internet is a luxury and instead they are viewing it as a necessity. So that's really where I think the analogy brings true and plays out. I, I guess the, the the part that I'm having a hard time with, you know, isn't the fact that this is a big problem that needs to be solved, but that this idea of, yes, this is a necessity, this is just as important as other basic utilities, wasn't addressed much sooner than it is now, because it just seems to have been a fact of life for at least 15 years, probably more than that. The pandemic fundamentally changed the way that folks understood what the absence of connections actually meant. When we saw students doing their homework in a Taco Bell parking lot or heard stories about teachers driving hours to make sure that kids uh, had their paper packets of homework because they didn't have internet access available to download things in the home, I think what that brought home was just the sheer inconvenience and then inequities that came along with that inconvenience and with that lack of connectivity. The day that we spent with Landrew, he was being very blunt about the fact that they need to get more people to sign up. The administration mm -hmm. thinks as many as 48 million households could be eligible. 19 million people have signed up, but it's it, it's less than half of, of, of who could be eligible right now. What do you think the challenges are to getting that number higher? 
research and surveys have found that just about half of eligible households actually know that the program exists. So we certainly have a lot more work to do when it comes to marketing and outreach. But I think more to the point, uh, this program is hard to sign up for. It's a multi-step verification process that can take several days. What folks on the ground have found is that it often takes someone uh, sitting next to this person who is trying to sign up, really walking them through that process. So the $30 subsidies are, are, are the immediate end of this. And the federal government is spending something like $500 million a month already paying out these subsidies for the 19 million odd people already in this program. Then there's the second half of it, the much more expensive, much more longer term half of expanding broadband infrastructure across the country to places where the Internet is slower. How important is that aspect of things when, when, when you're talking about closing the digital divide? Essential. I mean, you really can't have one without the other. And it is important, I think, for folks to understand that this benefit does go to the Internet service provider. And that's important because it helps stabilize an Internet service provider's revenue and it helps increase their customer base. In other words, it decreases their risk and uncertainty associated with expanding into markets that have high concentrations of low-income populations. What are you worried most about as you, as you look at the promise of these <laughs> projects and the possible reality? States are heading into a really essential phase of their funding development. They're actually designing their programs right now. They're figuring out how they're going to spend this money. They're figuring out the award structure, project areas. They have to be able to know that ACP is going to be there, that those funds are going to be there. So if there is uncertainty with ACP, if we're worried that that's going to run out in less than a year, that introduces a huge risk and a significant uncertainty to a process that's already very complex. That was Catherine DeWitt, director for the Pew Charitable Trust Broadband Access Initiative. You're listening to NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Start the week tomorrow with Ruba Shinoy and WBUR. President Biden is kicking off a three-week roadshow to get Americans and voters excited about his agenda. Plus, Jurassic Park at 30. Listen again tomorrow morning with 90.9 WBUR. Chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Temps in the mid-60s. Showers, thunderstorms possible. Temperatures tomorrow in the 70s. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the short-lived military rebellion by the head of the Wagner Mercenary Group, once an ally of President Putin, shows cracks in his leadership. Yevgeny Prigozhin is now headed to exile in Belarus. In Montana, authorities are testing water quality from the Yellowstone River after a bridge collapsed this weekend, sending train cars carrying hazardous materials into the water. Seven train cars carrying 
hot asphalt and molten sulfur went into the rushing river in a rural area near the town of Columbus. And at the weekend box office, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse reclaimed the top spot with $19 million in its fourth week. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Linda Mood Bell Learning Center's Instruction for Students to Catch Up or Get Ahead, live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com NPR. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations, more information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Michael Elizabeth Sackis is a reporter for Colorado Public Radio, and her beat is water. Sackis reports on the importance and the scarcity of water. Her new podcast, Parched, looks at the drought that has plagued the southwest U.S. for more than 20 years. It asks how we got here and what we can do about it. In May, Sack has sat down with my colleague, Rachel Martin. So let's set the scene. When we hear that things are bad in the Colorado River Basin, what are we talking about exactly? What does bad look like? Bad looks like the country's two largest reservoirs, which are Lake Mead and Lake Powell, both sitting at near record lows. They both hit record lows within the last year. Wow. And these are the water savings accounts for seven states and 30 indigenous tribes. Really, it's these reservoirs that are ground zero for this water crisis in the Southwest because we rely on these reservoirs for hydropower. Millions of people use it for clean drinking water. And I mean, we're talking about big cities like Las Vegas and San Diego and Phoenix and Tucson. And if you've seen pictures of these reservoirs, they're this very stark visual of how much less water there is in the Colorado River with extended drought and climate change. And so if we keep pulling more water out of Lake Powell and Lake Mead than what nature is putting in, we are threatening the ability to deliver clean drinking water to millions of people and to millions of acres of farmland. So let's talk about any viable solutions, if, if that's even a thing. I mean, when I think about the Colorado, I think about the fact that this is this massive river that doesn't even extend into the Pacific anymore because it's just tapped dry before it gets there. The last trickles sort of evaporate in the desert. Right. I mean, people want to know this, that is there anything we can do about this water crisis? And the thing is, is that we we have to do something. That's the hard truth, that we, we just cannot keep using water in the Southwest like we are right now. That is actually why we made this podcast, Parched. We want people to understand that, yes, there are things that we can do about this. So in this series, we explore ideas like desalination, right? Can we use the ocean as a big giant reservoir take out all the salt and grime out of the ocean water to make it drinking water for people? Can we do more with wastewater? Can we recycle what you flush down your toilet so that it can come back to your tap so that you can drink it? Wow. 
And how can farmers and ranchers change how they grow things? Because that's also one of the big realities here is that 80 percent of the Colorado River is going to farmland. So today in this episode, you're taking us to Las Vegas, which obviously conjures images of just over-the-top water use, right? Like huge ornate fountains and golf courses that require tons of water to keep green. But I understand you found that in some ways it's actually a model of water conservation? Explain. Yes, totally understandable that that would be surprising. It's surprising to most folks, right? Because we have these images of Las Vegas, like the iconic Bellagio fountain shooting water, you know, multiple feet into the hot desert sky and these big resort towns and, you know, homes with lawns. And what they're struggling with is what a lot of towns across the Southwest are struggling with is, you know, this limited water resource. And they have, they've been kind of forced to become this blueprint for sustainability because they don't get that much Colorado River water and a lot of people are moving there. All right, let's get to it. Here's Viva Las Vegas from the podcast Parched. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Big Elvis Show. Well, how you doing in Las Vegas? The piano bar in this Las Vegas Strip casino is packed with people from all over the world. They're singing and dancing along with an Elvis impersonator. His real name is Pete Valley. Ladies, come on over here. Give us your name, where you're from. Alicia, and I'm from Lubbock, Texas. She's from Lubbock. And I'm Anna, and I'm from Lubbock, Texas. Or two Lubbock Texans, we love it. So let's get this show on the road, baby. Let's do it. Pete's not just known as Elvis. He's Big Elvis. That's because he's a big guy. Once he weighed over 900 pounds. He's channeling Elvis's glitzy, over-the-top Vegas era with bushy sideburns, purple-tinted glasses, and a silky outfit. Pete's been performing songs like Viva Las Vegas on the Strip for 25 years. In the uh, talent contest like Elvis in high school, everybody screamed and yelled, and you know, I knew right away, I was like, I gotta do this. So Pete's mom brought him to Nevada when he was 15. He was drawn to this desert oasis, a city awash in sparkling lights, palm trees, big fountains, and pools. Well, I remember as a young boy, when I moved here, water was abundant. I mean, I remember the fountains at Caesars 24-7 going off. I mean, it was just, you know, so much water. Everything was water, but it was unlimited water, so nobody thought about it. Las Vegas is in the Mojave Desert, the driest desert in the country. So this city feels like a mirage, like an optical illusion sprung up from the vast blackness of the undeveloped desert landscape surrounding it. Las Vegas, as we know it, shouldn't exist. And it's hard to believe that it does. This mirage, this illusion people flock to to let loose and play hard is built on Colorado River water. It wouldn't be here without it. 
it's, it's, it is a desert, but we're, a lot of this world isn't all on the coast and it's not all in the perfect spot. I think this is a playground for America, you know, and it should continue to be always. But in the backyard of America's playground is Lake Mead. It's the country's largest reservoir and it's going dry. Without it, the Las Vegas fantasy turns back to dust. So the city has to figure out how to play it safe with just one thing, and that's water. Vegas is excess. Everything from food to gambling to whatever, nightlife, it's all excess. So they figure we're doing everything in excess, including wasting water. But that is just not certainly the case here, right? We're, we're not wasting water. As a matter of fact, we're, we're, we're on top of it. And that's why we're in Las Vegas. We're here to learn how and why this desert fantasy land wants to be the shining example of a city that can use less Colorado River water. From CPR News, this is Parched a podcast about people who rely on the river that shaped the West and have ideas to save it. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On this episode, I want to learn what Nevada is doing to cut down on guzzling water and why other states might follow their lead. So, to start, I went on the hunt for the state's most wanted water nemesis, thirsty grass lawns. This early in the morning, the warm rays of the rising desert sun are slowly starting to light up the sky over these houses. You might not think of suburban neighborhoods when you imagine Las Vegas, but more than two million people live in the county, which, despite being in the desert, has homes with emerald lawns gleaming with sprinkler water. This home has a very nice lawn, a lot more grass in this neighborhood, but again, pretty small lawns. So just kind of like squares of grass framed by a lot of rocks and deserty bushes and trees. I'm driving behind a cop car or what looks like a cop car. The vehicle has a badge on the side and instead of the common police slogan to protect and serve, it says to protect and conserve. The car is white with blue cartoon-like waves. At the top is a bar of flashing lights. We're out here patrolling for water bandits. We are taking a left on a street called Beach Walk. Oh wow, they just turned the patrol lights on as they entered this neighborhood. This is the Las Vegas Valley Water District's Water Waste Investigation Unit. And they're out here early in the morning to try and catch people wet-handed. I promise I didn't make that up. That's a slogan they use. Okay, the patrol car is pulling over again. We see some sprinklers on the left. We're gonna jump out of the car and take a look and see if there's any leaks, if anything is flowing out onto the sidewalk if they're allowed to be watering right now, and if any of that water flows into the road. Cameron Donnarumma gets out of the patrol car. 
He's a skinny guy in his early 30s with a serious face. He's wearing a yellow fluorescent safety vest. And there's a badge stitched on the front of his shirt that says Water Patrol. He's pulled out his phone and is filming sprinklers watering a small patch of grass. Water is running off the grass and into the street. There is no contributing flow upstream. There also appears to be a broken sprinkler in the front yard of this property. Okay, so tell me what you were just doing there. As we were patrolling the area, we noticed that this irrigation was running and water was leaving the property heading down the street. So that is considered a uh, violation according to the Las Vegas Valley Water District. I also did cite that broken sprinkler, the one that's kind of still squirting out. This broken sprinkler shooting water out onto the street is a satisfying find for Cameron, but a big problem for Las Vegas. Actually, it's a big problem throughout the Colorado River Basin. Watering lawns in Phoenix, Denver, Los Angeles, just to name a few, is a big way cities use their Colorado River supply. About 60% of Nevada's entire Colorado River budget goes outdoors to things like keeping trees, gardens, and grass alive. So that's why Cameron has this job, a water waste investigator. He says he mostly gives out warnings, but today he's giving these homeowners a fine because they're repeat offenders. They've been caught wet-handed before. So Cameron writes out a ticket, hangs it on the garage door, and puts a flag in the grass where the broken sprinkler is. What kind of fine are they looking at? Uh, most single-family homes, the first fine starts at $80. If we return and we notice that the violation has not been corrected, that $80 fine will become 160, it doubles, and so on. It will keep doubling until the issue is corrected. This is how big a deal it is in Southern Nevada to waste water on suburban lawns. There are water waste investigators handing out tickets for broken sprinklers. That can be hundreds of dollars. With the drought, the state's share of the Colorado River is shrinking and every drop counts. That was Michael Elizabeth Sackis, host of Parched from the Climate Solutions team of CPR News and Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovations Studio. This time next week, we'll hear how indigenous tribes were shut out of decision-making about the Colorado River, despite the river's key role in the tribe's culture. That's the level of reverence you give that stream or that river because our ancestors go back into that and they come from that as well. Listening to NPR News. 24 year old Mexican singer songwriter Peso Pluma just released his highly anticipated debut album. Even though he only started making music a year ago, as of today, he already has 10 songs on the Billboard Global 200. His new album is called Hennessy, or Genesis, and Ana Maria Sayer, host of NPR's Alt Latino podcast, has this review. La noche ha llegado, 
So, Peso Pluma is a regional Mexican artist coming from Guadalajara. Up until this point, he had only done singles, and so we were all kind of waiting to hear what an album, a full body of work from him would look like. He's playing this music called Corridos Tumbados, which is basically a modern take, a hip-hop spin on a very old genre called Corridos. Corridos is a genre in Mexico that has been around for over a hundred years at this point. It's something like a waltz overlaid with poetry. Very historic, very much your grandparents' music. And Corridos Tubados is a genre that came about a couple years ago that takes the genre and puts it on its head. So it's really exciting to see how he's pushing the genre forward, but in really subtle ways. He's not abandoning it. He's insisting that regional is really here to stay. This is VVS. It comes about halfway through the new album. And I love this track because it's both super traditional and it kind of gives me the feeling of him having his rockero moment with the slap bass, the fuerza delivery of the lyrics. The key thing about Corridos Tumbados is not just the actual sound that infuses rap and trap rhythms, but the fact that it infuses the themes as well. He has a lot of these kind of big victory tracks on the album, things where he's talking about how far he's come, showing his successes. This is an incredible example of that while staying really straight ahead with a lot of those traditional corrido rhythms. So this is 77, and it appears third on the album. Now, when I first heard this track, my mind was absolutely blown. It's an example where he does step outside of the genre with a collaborator, but it works gorgeously. Eladio Carrion is a heavy hitter in the Latin hip-hop space. I describe him very much as doing Latin and hip-hop because he brings a lot of American hip-hop traditional sensibilities to his projects, and he raps in the style. And so to hear that laid over a super straight-ahead corrido rhythm was so astounding to hear, and it works. Again, it feels like the guys are having fun and they're really doing some next-level innovation. Peso Pluma's debut album Genesis just made it official. You can throw on some Adidas and get down to your grandparents' favorite dance music. That was Ana Maria Sayer, host of NPR's alt-Latino podcast. Peso Pluma's debut album is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm John Carpilio, and we appreciate you listening today to 90.9 WBUR. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Just go to wbur.org slash newsletters. Up next at 
7 at uh, 6 o'clock, the New Yorker Radio Hour. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org, and Native Plant Trust, committed to conserving and promoting New England's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. More at nativeplanttrust.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky by phone today, reassuring him of the U.S.'s continued support for Ukraine. That includes continued security, economic and humanitarian aid. Meanwhile, Ukraine's military says its troops made advances on the outskirts of an eastern town that's been the scene of the heaviest fighting in the war. Kyiv continues to report limited progress in its offensive against Russian forces. And in Stockholm, at least one person is dead after a roller coaster at an amusement park derailed today, sending some of the passengers plunging to the ground. Nine others were injured. The park is closed. An investigation is underway, but there's no word on the cause of the accident. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR. PR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. NPR's Rachel Martin is back with us now, and that's because it is time for another conversation in her special series on how to build a life of meaning. It's called Enlighten Me. How's it feel to have this out in the world? It's, uh, it's a little scary. This is John Ward. He's a senior correspondent for Yahoo News, and he's the author of a memoir called Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation, which explains why he was feeling nervous, because John isn't some outsider writing a book about the failures of evangelical Christianity. This was his whole world. This was his family, his church, his community, his music, his whole identity. And he broke away. I felt a sense of suffocation from being in an environment where everyone thought the same thing and sang to the same chord structure. I wanted to understand what that choice to step away looked like and the consequences of living with it. John was born to spiritual seekers. His dad had been a Catholic, his mom a disenchanted Presbyterian. They were both caught up in something called the Jesus Movement or the Jesus Revolution, where a lot of people were looking for something fresh and new in religion. Um, And I think they were also disenchanted with um, the way the country had gone during the late 60s. Um, And so this religion, this Christianity, was very informal. Um, A lot of hippie culture involved, and they began holding Bible studies in the D.C. area that 
became very popular. The style was kind of a rock and roll worship service with a full band, drums, electric guitar, and all that. And then some dynamic preaching. And uh, my dad was one of the leaders of this group that was meeting. Um, His high school best friend, C.J. Mahaney, was uh, one of the top guys, one of the top leaders. And so that's the world that I was born into in 77. And I was the first infant dedicated at the church that they started on their own. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Dedicated, like baptized. Uh, I don't know. No? They, they might have sprinkled some water on our heads. I'm not. It was pretty <laughs> informal, you know. It was huh. like, we're just going to have the parents up on stage and pray over the child, essentially. Huh. Yeah. You write that the worst thing you could be called by an adult member of your church community was lukewarm. Can you explain that? This is such an important topic. They would quote a passage of scripture which talks about God literally spitting you out of his mouth if you are lukewarm. And it was often used, especially in youth group culture, to essentially communicate to us that we needed to be all in and on fire for God. And there was a real priority given to the emotional experience, right? You personally felt that you had to get caught up in the emotional fervor of the church to not be viewed as, quote, lukewarm. But it started to feel false to you. Can you tell me about the time that the minister of your church placed hands on you and explain what that means? Sure. I mean, the emotional aspect of it, we conceived of authentic faith as having very strong emotions for God. The moment you referred to took place in the mid-90s, and our church, like a lot of churches in the country at that time, was having services where they would invite people up to the front, and people would be prayed for, and then people would fall down, all under the auspices of a move of the Holy Spirit. And I went up to be prayed for um, late high school, early college. Uh, My parents, I believe, were with me, and the same pastor who my dad was friends with in high school, C.J. Mahaney, came up and prayed for me. And uh, at a certain point, I just felt like this has been going on for a while and I don't feel anything outside of my body. Like as he's putting his hand on you, you're like, I'm supposed to be feeling something now. Holy Spirit is going to. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Get to me any second. Right. And so I'm waiting for something to happen to me. And as it doesn't, he kind of nudged my forehead as if a signal to say, (laughs) now's the time for you to go down. Wait, he nudged you? Yes. Yes. I felt pressure to make it happen to me myself. So at a certain point, I did do that. And kind of, I I have a vague memory of actually as I'm going down to the ground, you know, people would catch you if that happened. But as I was in the process of going to the ground, I I believe I had this feeling of that kind of shame in the fact that I had faked it. Huh. So where did your faith move from there? There was a juncture where you decided, well, to not be lukewarm, I guess, anymore, Mm -hmm. and to just go all in. Right. Two years later, I've been in college for two years, and I've started to experiment with um, the really crazy lifestyle of occasionally having a beer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because that was not allowed. That was taboo. Yes, yes. Even though you were of age. Yeah. Midway through college... um, I had interpreted it at the time as this sort of move of God outside of me, on me, to grab hold of me and to um, 
stop me from going down the path of, you know, partying and all that. And so I went all in on church, cut off all my relationships with friends who are not on the same page as, as that, and spent all my time going to church services. And part of that, I tried to recreate in a daily sense in, in my room, in my private life, that same emotional euphoria um, that my parents had felt as young people that I had felt at times. Um, and, uh, and that became my entire, my entire world. So when you were in this particular chapter and you were really committing your life to the church and to your identity as a Christian, how did that jibe with the rest of your life? How did that work with, I mean, you were a single guy. What was it like dating? Well, you've opened up a whole can of worms by asking about... Let's open it up. What, it, what it's like to be a young guy in that setting. It's important to just kind of explain the theology that we were embracing at that time that I became a, a religious zealot um, around age 20. We focused on our own uh, basic badness, and we would call it indwelling sin or original sin. But it led to a very intense focus on uh, what I was doing wrong, a suspicion of my motives in all cases. And, mm. and a lot of us young men started, um, I think, at the encouragement of some of the pastors or leaders, having these meetings where we would talk about, you know, how often we had looked at pornography and even, you know, greater detail about, you know, our, our, our terrible sins on the Internet. And it was it was not a happy period, Rachel, um, if that's because you had to share all this in a group. right? Correct. Yeah. Sometimes in somebody's kitchen, sometimes at a Starbucks. Uh, and I, you know, I write about how I, I just remember trying to pull my chair as close as possible to the person next to me so that people we could talk as quietly as possible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, and I just was sitting there going like, why are we doing this in the Starbucks again? <laughs> And I, and I, you know, I might have wondered why are we doing this at all, but when you're caught up in something, um, mm -hmm. it's hard to pump the brakes a lot of times. But it wasn't just the the fear of public embarrassment over talking about, you know, any porn consumption at a Starbucks. In the book, you describe almost, I mean, not almost, you describe a, a self loathing yeah. that came over you when it came to sex or any kind of even sexual thought. Yeah. The the vigor which with we were encouraged to try to root out the impurity inside us um, led to a huge sense of shame anytime I fell short. And, you know, we would talk about uh, passages of scripture where it talks about if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And we would kind of take that and say, you know, how much worse is it if you are, you know, looking at porn? But basically it's the same as if you had committed adultery. So there's obviously like philosophical um, problems with interpreting that passage too literally, but that's the way we interpreted it. And so it just, you walk around feeling really, really bad about yourself. And then you try to work your way back up to a place of atonement, uh, atoning for your sin. You know, obviously the teaching is that Christ would have atoned for it, but you just can't help but try to atone for it yourself. In 2012, 
The pastor of your family's church was accused of covering up crimes of child sex abuse. Besides the the hideous nature of that crime, what did that revelation uncover for you about how some evangelical congregations operate? If, if you are continually operating in a world in which you believe God is speaking to you and as a leader in a particular way to you and that you have answers about ultimate reality and right and wrong that a lot of other people don't have, I think it actually predisposes you to think that you know better than law enforcement or people who anybody who's not in your world and doesn't think like you. So I think a lot of that cover-up, so to speak, was just them saying, hey, we're going to handle things internally according to the way we think is best, and that's the right thing to do. And they might still think that. Hmm. But by this point, you had already broken with the church. Can you tell me what precipitated that? Like what in the end made you decide that 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 you needed to find your own spiritual path, really. Yeah, right. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, by the time the sex abuse cases issue came to a head in 2012, 13, 14, I had been out of that church congregation for about a decade. And really, it was just a case of becoming exhausted from that cycle of uh, failure and atonement that I described earlier. And I, I had to get out of there. I also felt a sense of suffocation from being in an environment where um, everyone thought the same thing and sang to the same uh, chord structure. I've always felt like it was a good thing to be around people who thought differently, who thought different than I did, who could challenge my thinking. And as a result of working on this book, I've come to believe that journalism saved me from fundamentalism. Can you say more about that? Why? It's taught me how truth is not a set of answers that you begin with and then retroactively fit the questions to. It's something that requires rigor and modesty and a lot of work and also a recognition that a lot of things that we would like to put in boxes labeled true and false just defy our ability to do that. And so I think fundamentalism is just this desire to have those answers, put them out of reach of questioning, Mm. and then really just there's a sense of control inside fundamentalism. And um, I think one of the ice-breaking sort of statements for me has been a very simple one, and it's just I could be wrong. And I think as I've embraced that over the years, uh, it's been so liberating in many ways. idea of certainty right that sort of opens the door to my next question when donald trump came along and white evangelicals painted him as some kind of savior it was completely confounding to most people in the media and americans who didn't have a connection to the evangelical church but this did not shock you can you explain why this bizarre marriage between donald trump and white evangelicals made sense to you as someone from that world? I don't know that it did make a ton of sense, to be honest. I I guess I've come to understand it in retrospect. Mm. But 
and and there's still parts of it that I still don't get because there were some Christians, some evangelicals who painted Trump as, um, you know, God's man. But a lot of the evangelicals that I knew, both personally and sort of as public figures, were of the type that were repulsed by Trump and then came to a place of either trying to just sort of ignore politics or, as in the case of my own family, uh, rationalized their way to sort of embracing him. And then once you get into the general election time frame in 2016 and beyond, I think uh, tribal political identities overtake religious identities. And then you're you're into the presidency and Trump was very good at provoking outrage, which further solidified his supporters' attachment to him. But there was that process in 2015 and 16 of revulsion, resignation, and then rationalization. And then once once it was Republican versus Democrat, uh, the political identities snapped into place. How's your faith now? I um, I still I think affirm a lot of the same core teachings of Christianity that a lot of evangelicals do, but I hold it with a more open hand. And I think just the epistemic modesty, the sense of being aware of how much we don't know and embracing the sense that I could be wrong has given me a more open-handed stance towards faith. And I just love the idea that like, if I say I know it, then I, I've kind of eliminated the need for faith. And that's, to me, that's become such an exciting thing about faith is I actually don't know if this is true or real. And so I'm on a quest to continue onward and upward, as my dad likes to quote C.S. Lewis saying, in reliance on that faith. Don Ward, his book is called Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. John, thank you.